Welcome to my podcast in the morning. Welcome to my podcast in the day. Welcome to my podcast in the evening. Welcome to my podcast today. Welcome to my podcast, also titled, and we'll be right back. I'm Stephen Allen Green doing a bad Walter Winchell impression. Bad because it's such an old reference and because it's bad. Today's guests on the show are veteran stand-up comedian Rich Scheidner, who fought in the Great Comedy War and survived. He's got a new book out, and it's fascinating. Plus, a quick convo with British screenwriter Rob Kerr, who tells us the incredible story of the little country who could. So, without any ado whatsoever, and I don't even know what that means, please welcome your host, comedian, writer, and sometimes actor, me, Stephen Allen Green. And here I am. Welcome to my podcast today okay that that's a, a bit weird that's a bit too much bass uh on that theme song i wrote and recorded yesterday but i think it's it's fun it was fun to do it was the first time i ever uh, uh multi-layered track recorded music um hello everybody hi uh, this is Stephen allen green and uh welcome to and we'll be right back um that's the name of the podcast now as I was recording the uh, theme song, I was thinking maybe I should call the podcast Welcome to My Podcast. Uh, but I'm already enough of a confusing person, so I will stick with one confusing title, and we'll be right back. How are you? It's December 27th, 2016, the day after Boxing Day, which I don't think we celebrate here in America. Uh, we, we do in England. Uh, we is the royal we. Um, not meaning I'm royal, but everyone says it. Uh, Boxing Day uh, is usually when you go to someone's house and you have champagne the day after Christmas. And I think it has something to do with um, uh, boxing up the gifts you don't want uh, as opposed to uh, professional pugilism. Anyway, I hope you had a nice Christmas. Uh, I want to talk about a few things. We've got some great guests, two great guests. Great. And I'm going to compete them to see who's greater. Um, so just a bunch of stuff on my mind here and then we'll get going. Um First, I want to talk about what I guess I'm terming self-identity as a career. Um, you know, uh, we do live in an age of awareness and, you know, with more uh, freedoms in terms of lifestyle. I'm talking about, of course, the outgoing administration. Um, you know, people are able to express themselves of who they are, how they self-identify. And, of course, we identify with political parties. And there even is an invisible class system in America where there's the working class and the upper class, and we don't acknowledge it uh, to each other anyway. Um, so what I want to talk about is self-identity as a career. Um, you know, if I say I'm a writer, what do you do for a living? How many times does that happen to me? I go to a party, meet somebody, and in L.A. especially, they're going to, you know, Stephen is a comic. Okay, I'm a comedian. Well, yeah, I've been a comedian on and off stage for 35 years. Um, sometimes on for, you know, tours and sometimes one gig and then sometimes you know tumbleweeds um the same thing with all the things that i um oh amy's calling uh let me just talk to her for one second hey amy i'm just recording my opening uh, monologue for my uh, new podcast and i don't want uh 
I want to do this in one take. So can I call you right back? Okay, cool. Thanks. All right. And knowing me, I'll probably leave that in. Um, so anyway, um, so, uh, you know, it, it's just this incredible rationalization process that, you know, writers and comedians and actors who struggle out in Hollywood do. You know, what do you do for a living? I'm an actor. Well, that might mean that you had a national commercial two years ago and made $33,000 and most of it's gone and you've been borrowing money from the family or, or working a day job. But you still call yourself an actor. You still call yourself an actor? Um, and and conversely, if you work a day job, and I've had many of them, whether it's Uber driver or telemarketing working for the political company on uh, Wilshire called Telefund or I, I worked... Uh, David Campos campaign in San Francisco. I got a great story about that. Uh, or dog walking, whatever. I don't think of myself as those jobs. I'm not, you know, someone said, what do you do for a living? Uh, I, I'm not going to tell them what I actually do for a living. And I have, an, I have a particular insight into this over a lot of my colleagues because for a long time I had access to a lot of money. I don't like to say I was ever rich, <clears throat> uh, but I had money. And money I earned and money I was given and money I made through investments. And, you know, I'd fly to London, uh, stay for a few months, do a bunch of gigs and maybe make, uh, I don't know, uh, maybe, you know, thousand, two thousand bucks doing comedy gigs over there. Uh, and then, but I'd be spending, you know, much more to get there to do the gig. You know, I bought a, I bought a property, you know, uh, you buy a suit, you get on a plane, you have a nice meal. So, you know, I don't see anything wrong with it. I, do, I don't. I still don't. And there's always been this weird, it's almost like the elephant in the room here in L.A. Uh, what does that person really do for a living? So <clears throat> I just wanted to address that. I don't know if I have any particular answers. And I wish this podcast had people who, I wish it was like broadcast out so that people could call in. Give me their opinion. Um just jumping around here, uh, the roast battle. So this is a really cool thing. I had the uh, uh, the pleasure and the honor of interviewing uh, Brian Moses, the uh, host of the roast, um, several months ago before I really got into it. And I'm going to try to interview him again so that I can give a perspective of having done five battles, lost three, won two. Um, and my latest uh, loss uh, was to the fantastically talented Hannah Michaels. Very, very underdoggy looking. Uh, you know, I'm the, you know, big old experienced guy and she's the young, little petite young comic and looking shy on stage. But boom, 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 she knocked me out. She won hands down. She deserved it. She was great. So congratulations, Hannah. And I want to do it again. I want to battle again. I just got to take a breather and uh, and figure out my next opponent. Um, I went and saw this movie a few weeks ago that I'm acting in, that I acted, I did the, uh, the job early this year. It's called Railway Spine. It's winning awards at various festivals. It's about PTSD. It's about, uh, a bunch of guys from, you know, who went to Vietnam and I got to give it to, you know, I got to give it to Sam Gonzalez Jr., the director here. Um, this is like, uh, you know, the, you know, the classic Barry Levinson. It's got a little bit of Terrence Malick feel to it as well. It's really good. And I'm proud to be in it. And, uh, 
it was a little frightening looking at myself up there on the screen because I don't have a shirt on and I just look like this big old fat hairy old Jew, which who I am or who I look like. Uh, but I'm really, I saw the film, it was great and congratulations to Sam and I'd love to work with those guys again. They're just all full of love and support and, uh, and uh, what an honor for me. Um, uh, personally, I've been, I've been couch surfing a lot. Uh, you know, right now, I'm in a in a lovely house, sitting to three cats, and uh, in Boyle Heights, which is a real interesting part of Los Angeles. Uh, you know, it's old Spanish or Mexican, I guess, uh, Latino, and but it's coming up, you know, with the Starbucks, so it's completely ruined everything. Um, uh, you know, for a few weeks I was staying on a friend's couch, and then another friend's couch, and then for a month I was living in a a television star's mansion in uh, the hills. I can't tell you who. Um, uh, but I really do want to get my own place again. I really, really do. I just did not have had enough accumulative money. Now, a f- five months ago, I was living in Hollywood, paying rent on a nightly basis as I drove Uber at night. And I came back with cash. I put 20 bucks in the bowl. And, and the person that uh, rented me the room was happy and then I made coffee and I cleaned the kitchen we had a nice friendship and everything was fine until I uh the car got repossessed again this is the uber vehicle I was renting for 110 dollars a week plus 20 dollars a day in gas plus special insurance and go out and do an eight-hour drive and you know I would take some breaks bathroom or smoking or eating and uh but not continually and uh I would come home with you know, $65, and then, you know, basically covered my expenses. So anyway, what happened was I went on the road to do a benefit for homeless veterans up in the Bay Area, and my uh, landlord uh, kicked me out. And, and, and my landlord actually said, I'm sorry, but I, can, I, can, I, need, more, I need money so I, I can get more money for the room. And I guess he's just opened his eyes about Airbnb. So good luck to him. But ever since, I've been couch surfing. So it's not a, I just want to point out it's not choice. I used to own property, and I'm not going to go into the past. But anyway, um, I went to a comedian's funeral. Mel Cole, good guy, good, funny guy. Everyone loved him, and what a loss. All of a sudden, uh, I was on the writing staff with him and Frank Carrasquillo. Uh, We were writing for Jimmy Walker, Jimmy J.J. Walker. Uh, That was a fun job. It was, and uh, Mel and uh, Frank wrote with and for Jackie Mason as well, and uh, uh, Mel, you were a good man when I last saw you uh, at that audition, and uh, just your spirit is always so supporting, so God bless you, Mel. And Max Alexander passed. Now, Max was the uh, comedian who was much more successful than I in America, here in America, Um but when I had my success and when I was producing my uh, big shows at the London Palladium uh, in London, uh, Max uh, was, it's a long, it turned into a very long story, uh, but Max uh, basically, uh, I wouldn't book him on the show. I, I just didn't, I didn't see name value in him at all. And I was at that point, you know, when you book a show, you book some of your favorites, you know, and you always have to, balance that out how much stage time which is essentially real estate 
am I giving away for what purpose? So there are some comics that I booked that I thought were great and didn't bring me anything. Zach Galifianakis is the classic example who was not known in England. And actually, it was, you know, he worked for me in 2000, the first High on Laughter 2000, then, of course, the Palladium Show in 2002. So I don't remember when he hit in America, but... Um, he certainly wasn't known at all in England, but he delivered on stage. He was like, you know, fantastic, you know? Um, so there are comics that, you know, you book because you know they're going to really help make the show. And, uh, you know, the experience of the audience as well as the other comedians on the show, you know, they, everyone wants to be on a good show. Um, and then there are comics that you book because you think they're going to bring people in because they're more famous. Well, of course, this is the reason that I was so excited and thrilled to have Jerry Lewis on the show. But the way I, that Jerry Lewis came into the picture was through Max Alexander, who just passed away. Now, Max was a good comic, and a lot of people loved him. I'm going to be careful what I say. Uh, and I'm, you know, don't like to speak ill of the recently dead. Um, too soon. Um, but it was Max who uh, set up the... Uh, uh, meeting with Jerry and uh, it was it went more than that but uh, Max thank you for doing the show God bless you I know you're a good guy and I think you got a little bit bamboozled yourself uh, anyway um, I did see Jerry Lewis I went to a screening of his movie Max Rose and they had Q&A and of course you know I was deciding should I go up and say something so I went up and you know I was just like Jerry it was good to, it's good to see you I haven't seen you since London and you know I'm you know, blah, blah, blah. I was polite, you know, in front of everyone. And Jerry was very rude and dismissive. I don't remember you. <laughs> of course he did. He's such a liar. Um, anyway, what else? Um, well, just looking at my notes here because I don't want to talk about everything. Um, oh, yeah. Um, I got this job recently. Uh I'm the managing director or managing editor of something called The Hollywood Dog, thehollywooddog.com. And we do a very interesting thing, um, I think. Uh, we write uh, sponsored blogs, uh, but we do it in a way where it's like, let's say you got a store, uh, you know, uh, you sell coffee, you know, and uh, you want to get more business. So we write blogs and we write two blogs. So we write the one blog, which is, you know, this store has this kind of coffee and they're located here and they're terrific, blah, blah, blah. But the other blog is the affiliate blog. So we write a story around it, around your experience of discovering it. Like, for example, uh, uh, the best example I have is the uh, the barbershop in Farmer's Market. Um, so we'd write a, I did write a blog, which is, you know, uh, yeah, I was... Uh, in farmer's market having lunch and you know i had you know my agent called and said i had an audition but i needed to get a haircut immediately for this audition so the audition was in an hour i didn't know what to do and you know and it's that kind of thing where you stumble upon the place but you write it a lot more believable than what i just did and interesting and i think people do find a value for being entertained even if they're being sold a product so the hollywood dog the hollywooddog.com we do affiliate um writing um there's a couple other things and i'll introduce the show here uh well let's talk about my guests um so uh first up is uh 
Rob Kerr. And uh, uh, Rob is a very interesting and talented uh, screenwriter uh, who lives in Cambridge, England. And um, we connected last March over a project that I had been very interested in the theme for a long time, uh, the theme of secession. Um, and uh, he's, he won a, the uh, London uh, Film Festival Screenwriting Award for a screenplay called The Republic of Frestonia. And we've been developing it further and uh, attaching people to it and trying to make it into a movie which I hope to direct. Um, I already directed a film in Notting Hill, and this is a Notting Hill film. It's a very interesting interview. And then uh, Rich Scheidner, who's the, uh, the lion's share of the show today, uh, wrote this really, really terrific book. Um, and uh, I've got it right here. I promise I'm not going to edit this. So uh, it's called Kicking in the Ashes. And I was reading it uh, the other night at Norm's while I doused my sorrows in a beautiful milkshake. These milkshakes at Norm's on La Cienega for three ninety nine. You know they're better than anything you'll get anywhere else and a better price. Well, I had a quote here in the book that I just can't find. Where is the hell is it? Uh, my bookmark fell out. Anyway, it's a really great book about stand up. Rick is a, a rich, rich is a really great writer um, as well as a great comedian and a pretty pretty cool guy. I don't like to say anybody's a great guy. You know, I mean, you know, Napoleon, he was a great guy. Um, oh, <laughs> and uh, I'm going to play for you here, uh, if I can find it on my laptop, my new laptop, I think. It's a two-minute piece. So I was an Uber driver for 18 months up until about six months ago. And um, oh, I might as well just introduce the, uh, this is, uh, I'll just introduce it from here. Uh, so basically, I had done a... Uh, uh, like a six or seven hour shift. It was now three thirty four in the morning, and I get a call to pick somebody up at uh, like eighty seven thirty one the Santa Monica Boulevard. You know, just right near the Troubadour. But there was no one there. Not even patrons waiting for Ubers or to go in or smoking. There was nobody there. So, uh, I call the guy. I think I called him. Usually, when when you get to a location. And you get there in time, of course, and you get to the exact location, and the passenger, the rider, as they're called, is not there, and then they call you. That always signifies a problem, like, I'm on the other side of the street because I don't know how to use GPS. So, anyway, this guy calls me immediately with an attitude, you know. Where are you? Oh, I'm right here at 8731 Santa Monica Boulevard. Where are you, sir? I always give them a couple of sirs. I don't suck up, but I'm professional. Um... Well, I'm in pavilions. You know where pavilions is? And I go, yes, I do. Um, and I start turning the wheel and getting out into the street to do a U-turn. He goes, well, do you know how to drive into a parking lot? You know, I'm not doing his sarcasm correct. You'll hear him in a minute. Um, anyway, he just kept on and on until I finally just said, you know, sir, it's the end of my shift late night. Best of luck to you. And I disconnected him, which means, you know, I don't have to pick him up. And he gets charged like five bucks. So... He then calls back. Now, I don't know. I haven't done Uber in a while. But back then, uh, the scrambled number uh, allows the passenger to, or you, you know, to communicate until another call comes in. Then it goes to them. This guy calls back and starts harassing me. 
And I'm like, look, man, I don't, you know, I'm just working. You, you know, you were rude. You know, what, what do you want? You know, go call another Uber, leave me alone, that kind of thing. And he's going, my name is Kyle Hunter. I'm with Fox News. I'm recording this and I'm going to, uh, you know, uh, expose, you know, Uber, the most evil company in the world. And, and for you, for, you know, having the most, you know, the only job a loser like you can get. And it just became, you know, I disconnected him again. You know, Good luck, pal. I got to go. And I picked up. These two Indian guys, dots, not feathers, um, you know, like, you know, uh, tech guys, you know, from India and they're polite couple of guys and they're in the back. And then Kyle Hunter calls me back again a third time. He calls me a third time, calls me back a second time. Uh, again, well, he can call me three times. Um, and this time I've got my portable podcast recorder out because he told me he was recording me. So I thought, yeah, I mean, this made me nervous. I, I thought if this guy's for real, if he's really Kyle Hunter from Fox News, I mean, how do I know what, you know, anchors or reporters work for Fox News? How does anybody know that? You know, Kyle Hunter, Kyle Hunter. So I felt for a moment like, you know, we have to, we have, we have bad writers, you know, we have to write them up. I'll tell you some stories on the, on the next podcast. Some of my Uber stories, you just wouldn't believe. Um, and we're supposed to, as drivers, we're supposed to report them because it's not good for the system. But this time somebody was calling up claiming in a way to represent Fox News and they were recording me and he was pissed off at me because I didn't pick him up. And of course I felt an enormous amount of pressure to represent uber unofficially without their permission and i had to you know i suppose i could have disconnected them again but this time you know so anyway it just gets you'll hear the recording is just you know it's just back and forth it's stupid i listen to it now and i cringe it's kind of immature but at the moment you know it seems important at the time you know meanwhile the indians in the back you know dots not feathers uh, we're like, you know, America's so exciting. You know, me and this Kyle Hunter are threatening each other and whatever. So uh, just the uh, the punchline to this story is that I, uh, you know, I recorded this and, I, and I, I emailed Uber and I said, we had a really bad, I had a really bad passenger or near passenger. This guy's very abusive and rude and i just want i recorded him because he said he was recording me and and he said he was with fox news so um should i send you in the uh the recording and they went yeah please send it in so i sent it in and they suspended me for an indeterminate amount of time meaning that there was about five days when i didn't have any way to make any money to eat and um you know, I have no more credit cards and, you know, I live on a cash to mouth basis and, uh, you know, suddenly, and they don't tell you, they don't say we're suspending you for five days. So go borrow a hundred bucks from your best friend. You know, it's not that it's, you know, you think you're done they, and you can try to communicate with them. You go, is this a permanent or is this, you know, they finally came back in and they reinstated me. And what they told me, I was asking, you know, why did you suspend? They said, because I was communicating with another driver, another rider, when I had passengers in the in the other passengers in the car. Oh wow, really? Is that really right? I mean, you know, I can see their point, but it's not. It's I don't know. You know, I don't think they had anything. I think they were just coming up with something. And uh, 
there you go. So I don't really drive Uber or Lyft anymore. Don't do it. I had, uh, it's just, it was, honestly, it was a waste of my time. It was a lot of fun, but the expenses are way too high, and you just don't, you end up making less than minimum wage. That's been my experience. The only real way to make money with Uber or Lyft is to recruit other people. So if I got you to drive Uber, for example, and you did the prescribed number of rides in 30 days, I'd get 500 bucks. And there are people that have set up workshops and are online pitching this. I've had it pitched to me as an Uber passenger by other Uber drivers. Oh, I'm making $1,500 a week. Bullshit. Bullshit. At the end of the day, it's at best a minimum wage job. And you have really, if you own your own car, that makes a difference. But still, you're paying for gas and you're out there and you're putting wear and tear in your car. The thing I liked about it was it was fun. It was really fun. I had a lot of met a lot of really cool people. Uh, there were some troubles. I'll tell you about that next time. Um, and I, I was able to pay my rent. Uh, and I say this, you know, you know, resent, re rentfully, resentfully, uh, because you know I've been scrambling, uh, you know, to pay rent. So here's my final point before I play the Kyle Hunter thing. Um, a lot of people who do podcasts. Um, make money doing podcasts so how do they do that well i'm still figuring it out there's affiliate advertising someone was telling me about there's um the the donation button i'm gonna set this up on either soundcloud or on my website uh and i'm gonna have a donation button and basically it's kind of the idea is if you like the show and you then you, you by all fairness you got to consider this entertainment and Although there's a lot of free entertainment out there, you know, you show your appreciation, make a donation. So like, you know, five bucks, you know, or something. I don't know. Whatever. But um, I want to stop the people out there, the trolls that are constantly accusing me of uh, begging on the Internet. They just don't know how it works. And this is one of the way it works is with a donation button. So I'm providing content that you're enjoying. There is a way I can do it, by the way, which I'm going to try to set up which gives gives the listener a sample, like, you know, 45 seconds of the show, and then if they like it, then they can purchase it. So I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that this time, but whatever you can donate, I appreciate it. And don't donate until you listen to the whole show because I want you to get your money's worth. Anyway, that was a very long opening, uh, and I think I'm going to leave it because I'm going to listen to it maybe and see if it holds and uh, see if there's anything I said there that I'll regret. <laughs> but... Um, Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be right back with, and we'll be right back. I think that's... You only pick up rides after you've guaranteed the rides that you think are uh, are profitable? Is well, no, no, Kyle. I thought you were quite rude, and I was trying to help you. Oh, you're, you're right. I'm no, 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 how was I rude? I was Irish. I don't... Yeah, you, no, Carl. Exactly no, uh, Kyle... What's your name again? Oh, Kyle Hunter. So, Kyle Hunter, this Friday on Fox. Yeah, well, wait, wait, yeah, yeah. What Kyle, was your name again? Kyle. Since you're, since you're recording this, what's yeah. your name again? Since who's recording what? I said, since you're recording this now, what's your name? Well, how do you know I am yeah, or not? You get all... You get awful quiet, don't you? Because all I have from you is your license plate number and that you're a loser because you're fucking driving for Uber and now you're fucking doing this. But let me tell you about Uber. Yeah, but you're getting criticized. Yeah, but Kyle, you, Kyle, you called for an Uber. Why didn't? Why couldn't you afford a limo? Oh well. Oh that's well. A different thing. 
Oh well, what, would you like to oh, would you like to meet up in person and talk about it? Let me tell you something. I I can. Would you like to meet up and talk about it, Kyle? Oh, I'm like, well, no, I don't want to talk to you. I want to talk to your bosses to get your ass fired from the only job that you can possibly have because you're a right fucking here. loser. You. You're no, a goddamn on, on, loser. And you hang know. on, no, 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 hang on. Close the door. Close the door. I'm gonna. Right here, right here, right here. Oh, okay. All right. Hey, listen, you guys are great. I'm gonna not charge you for this because this guy's really crazy. So. Are you sure? No, you yeah. Sure. If you can hear me, then get the hell out of the taxi because he's a fucking nut job. I'm sorry about this. Nice. Have a good Listen, Thanksgiving, guys. I'll let you go. I'll no, Kyle. You Kyle. You're a goddamn loser. Kyle. You're a loser. Kyle. Kyle. Where are you? Let's talk. And we'll be right back with. And we'll be right back after this important message. Hi, are you in need of a professionally produced voiceover? My name is Stephen Allen Green, and I've done voices for corporate concerns such as Gallo Wine, Garmin Navigation, the BBC, Comedy Central UK, and Warner Brothers Films. My rates are very reasonable, and I can write the copy too. All work is guaranteed to meet your particular specifications and needs. I produce the ad, which includes sound effects and music, whatever you might need. Let me know if I can help you with a professional voice for your business. The following is a real ad I did for National Radio in the UK. Enjoy, and thank you. In a place that's all about luck. You don't work, you just gamble. Who said it's not work? (laughs) It's fun. They'll have to risk it all. I feel like we have a chance of something special here. To win it all. From the director of L.A. Confidential and In Her Shoes comes Lucky You. Don't chase who you can't catch. Eric Banner. Sometimes you got to play your gut. Drew Barrymore. You know what I think? I think everybody's just trying not to be lonely. Lucky You. At cinemas from Friday 22nd. And welcome back to And We'll Be Right Back. I'm Stephen Allen Green, and with me right now is a special guest, a good friend of mine and a collaborator, uh, we're speaking to him via Skype all the way from Cambridge, England. Is that right? Welcome, Rob Kerr. That is correct. Thank you very much, Stephen. It's great to be on the show. I'm a big fan. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. I should have said screenwriter, award-winning screenwriter. Um, so uh, you won Best Screenplay at the London Film Festival for uh, an original script about uh, an historical event. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the script. Thank you. Yeah, the uh, the title of the script is "The Republic of Restonia," and it is about that. Uh, for anyone who hasn't heard of the Republic of Restonia, it was a big deal way back in '77, where a group of squatters living in West London decided that they'd had enough of being victimised by the Greater London Council and declared their independence from not only London, but from the UK. So there was a, a little a little block of London that became independent for all intents and purposes. And that became the Republic of Frestonia. When you say the Republic of Frestonia, do you mean like they formed a separate country? That's correct, yeah. They were, uh, they considered themselves a micronation, which, uh, and now they're not the first people to have done this, but they were certainly the most successful in terms of the, the big media splash that they made and the way they were treated by uh, other countries and other organizations. So they, they really were effectively operating as a micronation for quite a few years. Wow, that's uh, pretty extraordinary. So what you're saying is how it's, it's as if here in Los Angeles, uh, 
let's say, uh, you know, the farmer's market. I don't know if you know the... Have you ever been to Hollywood? I uh, passed through Hollywood very briefly, yeah. Yes, pass through. Yes, there it is out on your left. So the farmer's market is, uh, well, it's a little shopping area now, but it's basically a, a four square block area. Um, there's restaurants and shops. And um, so it's as almost as if farmer's market declared their independence from the United States of America and seceded and formed their own country. I mean, it's yeah, that's, exactly. is that what happened? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, so the, the interesting bit, I guess, is why they did that. And... Uh, it's it's a long story, but as hey, I Rob, these guys Rob, let me ask you a question. Why did they do that? I'm glad you asked. Uh, it, it's an interesting story, actually. Uh, so, as I mentioned, the people that lived there were squatters, uh, but they had they came from all different backgrounds. I mean, some of these guys had nowhere else to go. Uh, some of them were from other countries originally. Some of them were more idealists who just liked the bohemian lifestyle and and liked mixing with artists because there were a lot of artists in the area uh, but for, for whatever reason these guys ended up living together and there were about 200 of them at, at the peak of the uh, of the country and uh, so they were living in relative uh, comfort I suppose although the life of a squatter is often very difficult well, Rob, let me. I was going to ask you. Sorry for interrupting. I was going to ask you because um, I think I think squatter is a is a British term. I don't know. I don't. I haven't heard it that much in America. So, uh, would you explain a squatter um, is is it's someone who or, or, uh, takes over an abandoned building of some kind and lives there basically illegally, but you know, no one knows, no one cares, and they're squatting. Right? That's what it is. Right? That's what it means. Yeah. So somebody will become a squatter perhaps because they have nowhere else to go, but there could be other reasons. And effectively, as you say, they will find a building which they don't have legal rights to occupy, but uh, once they are able to access the building, they may make it habitable if it is not habitable. And I think uh, in terms of the ethics of it, they, they, will, they are only trying to make use of a building which otherwise is not being used. And back in the 70s and 80s, this was something which a lot of people were doing. Uh, and it was something that could be done without uh, being too far on the wrong side of the law. I mean, no. these days, mm -hmm. it's much, much harder to... Of, of course. Of, uh, With all the cameras in London and all that, they didn't have the CCTV back in those days. Um, so I, uh, doing my research on it, I'm... Uh, they had their own postage stamp. They had ministers. They all took the same last name, surname of Bramley, because it would make the council and make more difficult for for the local government to kick them out if they were one family. Um, so it seemed like what they were doing uh, was, you know, about uh, uh, survival, um, you know, uh, self preservation. But at some point, it got politicized. That's right. It, it, it was about survival. I mean, some of these people, as I mentioned, were quite uh, maybe well-established. You could say they had careers and they had, uh, in some cases, affluent backgrounds. Some of these people were extremely vulnerable. And in fact, it was people like David Rappaport, who is, was an actor, and Nicholas Albury, who was a social activist, and Heath uh, uh, Coat Williams, who was uh, another activist and artist. Um, these people really kind of led struggle and gave a voice to people who otherwise were effectively being victimized by um, the council. 
these were just average people essentially who were artists they were not successful artists they were struggling artists and in a way i suppose emerging artists but in a way i mean it also speaks to the artists in the sense that you know an artist really just needs to create doesn't really need money <laughs> yeah, I mean, we all need money. Sorry. Well, this is the thing. So, this is the thing that I find interesting about it. it. Art and the the life of the artist was a big part of the movement. Now, back in those days, a lot of these people just needed somewhere to to get set up. So, uh, there was one guy who was restoring lutes, the musical instrument the lute. Uh, he had this little. Uh, business restoring them, and he became a resident of Frestonia because it was somewhere where he could set up a workshop and hone his craft and serve customers or, or whatever he was doing. I mean, he, I don't think he was a particularly commercial guy, but at the same time, he needed a place to get set up. And there were other people in those circumstances as well who simply couldn't get on their feet and launch their career without a break like that, without somewhere to nurture their talent and so that was something that was common to a lot of the occupants you know I have and, to uh, yeah uh, sorry well it, it interests me because yeah. know, I, I kind of empathize with people in, in those situations now I mean if you're trying to launch a career in something which isn't going to quickly turn a profit then it's extremely difficult and uh, I can completely understand why people need to do that absolutely I mean yeah I mean in a way I suppose that's why it feels like in Hollywood that everyone lives in a bubble in their own little Frestonia around their head, you know, uh, creating uh, the future that they envision. Um, uh, you know, I uh, I owned I lived in I owned property and lived in Frestonia. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, as you know, uh, I had uh, property at One A Mortimer Square, just. Uh, next to and above, it was a multi-level flat, the Embassy Cafe. Uh, what was the cafe called back then? I think it was the Embassy Cafe back then because was it? Uh, there's yeah. a guy called Tony Sleep who lived there. Yeah, he was the uh, he, he was a photographer and a resident there. Again, an emerging photographer who was kind of cultivating his talents. And uh, so he's got pictures, which we call the time, around 77 uh, through to 82, I think is when he left. And one of his photos features the Embassy Cafe. I think called that at the same time. Very cool. Very cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, um, Rob, let's 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 not kid around anymore. Let's let's do the big reveal. Uh, Rob and I have been working together uh, on turning this into a feature film. Uh, is that not is that not is that not correct, Mr. Kerr? That is a fair statement, yes. We've been working pretty hard, actually. We have been, uh, since March, and it's been fun. And, uh, you know, we've been tweaking the script and getting people involved. We've got, oh, well, we should tell everybody, you know, if, you know, we're trying to get the film, we're trying to get a deal, we're, we're reaching out to a particular uh, actor, uh, but we do have a win. We have a win, which is uh, uh, who our musical director is. Because this is 1977 London, and you know we've got to have, you know, the Clash who recorded Combat Rock in Frestonia, but we got to have, you know, some Clash music. And I have a particular song or two that I think would be great. We both know what it is. We have, as musical director, Lull Tolhurst. 
tell our audience yeah. who Lowell is and why it's so important. Why he's so important to you? Well, I mean, this was very serendipitous. I, I, I'm a really, really excited to have Lowell on board. Uh, of course, you were able to meet him in LA, and this is kind of how this happened. Uh, but you didn't know, of course, that actually The Cure were the, the first band that I ever got really crazy about. And uh, I, I guess I was about 12, actually, when I started listening to The Cure in 92. Uh, by, by that time, I think Lowell had left the band. But I was going through that back catalogue, and I was completely immersed, completely absorbed by The Cure. So when you told me that you uh, met Lowell, that was extremely exciting. And um, I, I think you'll he'll be fantastic because obviously The Cure started out in about 76, 77. I think their first album might have been released in 78, if I'm getting my, my history right. And of course, you know, their, their music's extremely atmospheric and uh, Lowell's gone on to do loads of other work as well. He's, he's still been recording music and coming out with great stuff since then. Uh, so you should check out uh, his new stuff if you haven't. It's on Spotify, really good stuff. And, uh, yeah, he'll be an amazing guy to, to add to the yeah, atmosphere. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to get him on the podcast. Uh, he's got a new book out called Cured. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really exciting. And I, I uh, wrote and directed a film in Frestonia, well, right around my flat in London. And, uh, you know, I'm just, I think this is a great story. I think it's got, you know, for, for me, it all boils down to kind of, you know, the, the basic, it's a comedy premise, which is, you know, who set these rules? Who's in charge? Who, who why should I have to do something abs- in an absurd way because it's the law? And, you know, wh- what, wh- what is that? And, and also, why can't we just control ourselves and be, you know, I always wanted to have like in the constitution, just, you know, just don't be an asshole. Just don't be an asshole. I was going to say arsehole, but just don't. You know, yeah, you can murder someone if they deserve to be murdered and if you do it in a polite way. Now, I don't mean that. I'm not advocating murder, uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, and children, in case you're listening, um, and animals, in case you understand. Oh, I could go on. Uh, Rob, uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you, and it shall remain a pleasure working with you and uh you have a lovely happy christmas in england um uh, god yeah i miss that place i'm coming back yeah you keep promising that you gotta get over sometime i know i'm working on it i got plans let's make this movie and that will bring me back you got a deal all right mate all right great talking with you uh that's been uh my interview with uh Screenwriter Rob Kerr in Cambridge. Uh, This is Stephen Allen Green, and we'll be right back with And We'll Be Right Back. Many times people ask me, they say, Hey, Stephen, how do I do a blog? Well, it's easier than you think. My name is Stephen Allen Green, and I am the managing editor of something called The Hollywood Dog. We're looking for writers. The Hollywood Dog publishes blogs about life and the life of being whatever you are. Whether you're an actor or an activist, we here at The Dog will publish your blog. We're looking for content. Plus, if you're looking for a little extra money, we will pay you to find affiliate advertising businesses who want to be blogged about. We also offer direct on-site advertising. For more info, email me at info at thehollywooddog.com. Don't keep your ideas in the doghouse. And welcome back to And We'll Be Right Back. My next guest is a fantastically talented comedian and writer and actor, uh, <laughs> <He is> a, <laughs> and laugher. He is. A, a, you are. 
Uh, I'm talking to the audience, Rich. Um, gosh, uh, he's uh, been on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson 21 times, two HBO specials. Is that correct? And one, one HBO, one, special, HBO, one Showtime, one Showtime. Okay, fair yeah, enough. Well, yeah. two Showtime specials equals one HBO. So, um, and <laughs> sorry, uh, and uh, Letterman, were, Letterman, and you were on uh, in, uh, uh, Married with Children. Yeah, Married with there. Children. Married wrote, with Children. Wrote on Roseanne. Uh, yeah, I've done a lot of different things to try to stay in show business, including. Let's just get this plug in early, and we can go back yeah. to regular convo. Um, including, you've got a new book out. Kicking Through the Ashes, My Kick- Life as a Stand-Up in the 1980s Comedy Boom. Kicking Through the Ashes is the main part of it. Right. Absolutely. Right. And uh, this is, uh, would you call this a memoir? Uh, yes, a memoir it has the history of stand-up comedy in the 1980s part of it. That's a big part of it. It also uh, cover every aspect of the experience of being a stand-up comic. Uh, so, yeah, the new book is called um, Kicking, Kicking Through, Through the, the Ashes. And it's a memoir? Memoir, a history of stand-up comedy in the 1980s, and a how-to book for stand-up comedy. I cover every aspect of what a stand-up comic experiences and what they have to do, the art of stand-up. I try to cover a lot of things there. Give them a lot of bang for the buck. Right. And where can they find this lovely book? Amazon.com and the trunk of my car. The two places. I will be... Is that trunkofmycar.com? Yeah, or? trunkofmycar.com. And, uh, <laughs> and I'll be doing a book signing at, at Book Soup. Oh, great. January 6th. Oh, that's great venue. Hollywood. That's a great venue. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was there for... Uh, last I was there for Kitty Bruce's uh, book signing. Excellent. Um, and uh, the, this is uh, uh, a book about... You know, a lot of comics, a lot of anybody who writes a book about their own life and their experiences, it comes off as, you know, this is my life, this is my point of view. And the one thing that I really enjoyed about your book was that it, it, it you're not so much at all, actually, you're not, and that was a British way of saying at all, you're not at all showcasing yourself as this, uh, you know, uh, purposeful person with a message to come out or that i've survived you know you can too <laughs> you know it's none of that it's a really interesting read from a guy who's almost as if the way i would describe you is it's almost as if you are in rich scheidner the comedian is a puppet and you are a puppeteer in making these things happen and experiencing them but also observing them in that same way that's where i was going with that well i I hit at the right time, if you want to call me that zealot of the 80s comedy scene. I mean, I was there. I was there. I was there. You know, I started doing stand-up in 77. So when the boom hit, I was poised to 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 be able to hit the road and do all those clubs. And and uh, so I did it. And then I was hanging out with all those comics back then. The Kennison, Bill Hicks, Leno... Everybody had wrote about in a book, the stories of Robin Williams, Andy Kaufman, and then all the other comics that nobody remembers that were legendary road dogs at the time, Holly Joe Prater or, or John Fox. So I have stories about both ends of the spectrum there, you know, the ones who made it, the, the names that linger and carry the, the, the stand-up comedy message on, and the ones that are forgotten, you know, for, forgotten road wrecks of the 80s. <laughs> right. Um, and those are the tend to be the favorites of the comics. Well, right? we we love, you know the old comic joke, right? Two comics meet on the street. One comic goes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. "How you doing?" He goes, 
You know this joke. Yeah, bring I, it I on. know. I, I, I just was in Cleveland. I killed. Standing ovation. Every show's fantastic. The other comic goes, eh. He goes, and, I, and, I, and I, then I went to Detroit. Unbelievable. Tore it apart. And the other comic goes, eh. And, he goes, and I went to Chicago. Died. Died in Chicago. The other comic goes, yeah, I heard about that. So, I mean, bad news travels fast in comedy. And we it's like like comics, like watching other comics die on stage. Because we know what it's like. And there's that certain empathy and sadism mixed together that we, we when we tell stories, when we tell these road stories and they're hell gigs or they're, they're tough, we know what it's like because we've gone through it. So there's a camaraderie there as well as that shared experience of how'd you get through it and and then it became a funny story. They all became funny stories. The only funny stories that were terrible at the time. No f- funny story is like, you know, I, I won the lottery. Yeah? Yeah, I won the lottery. Nothing funny there. Not for me. <laughs> so, uh, I always uh, likened the uh, sort of the, 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 the collective uh, or. Uh, organical, if you will, because uh, I'm going to look that up later. I, uh, it, I won't, but go yeah, ahead. Just the way things worked in the comedy clubs where you, where we, uh, me, as like another comic who got to interact with uh, comedians that, you know, you'd always look at somebody and you'd know they just did The Tonight Show or you know that they had management and yet, you know, you're sitting in the back and you go, you know, I, he should have done that joke and I'm funnier than that guy. But nobody's, you know, okay, am I being bitter? I'm going to go outside and have a smoke. That kind of thing. I always likened it to, uh, on the dark side, I likened it to high school football because basically you have certain human beings that have the right body size and weight uh, and they're you know, going to have grown up in, a, in an atmosphere where their father tosses them the football. And they're going to have certain types of uh, aspects of their personality that, that is going to make them perhaps, um, uh, you know, uh, not outgoing. I forget the word. Um, anyway, and, and so I would look at these comics, like yourself. And, so, you know, and you, you were like an exception. You were like, oh, there's a guy who's making it, who really is funny. But the, I guess I'm making two parallel points. I'm trying to... Do you think some... Well, I was kind of confused by your football analogy. Cause you, yeah. Because I, I always think of football players as mostly... by the, there's, there's a huge genetic aspect of sports. you got eye-hand coordination. You don't have eye-hand coordination. You're 6'5", 260, or you're not 6'5". Well, my analogy is that you, everyone knows those facts very early on, puts their money on those guys, puts the work into those guys... And those are the guys that do that get on the team, and so that's you, you think that's the way with comedy too. I think in an aspect, absolutely. I think it's the opposite of comedy. I kind of disagree. I mean, I, you yeah, can't, you can't even okay. tell who's going to make it. There, there's people who late bloomers, but it's it's not even genetic because it's environmental. I don't think there's very much other than the native intelligence to be able to 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 come up with the the, the comedy. You know, do you the, think good looking? The rest of it is environmental. You were raised sure. to be a comic one way or another, good or bad. You're raised to be a comic. Well, let me ask you this: Do you think good looking people who become comics and who are still young stand a better chance of making it than someone who perhaps isn't great looking or you don't mind making it as a sitcom star? We're talking about sitcom. having a career where you don't have to, you know, where you actually feel like. You've well, it's the thing about comedy. You can be, you can have a goofy look, and it works for you in comedy. Okay. Right. I mean, you're not going to have a goofy look. That, generally speaking, like you become a character actor, it can always work for you in comedy. Right. Okay. I mean, the, I mean, the, 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 on the scale, we used to always think back of a scale. Like, the, what's the easiest category to be? 
you know, to do stand-up comedy versus the hardest. And back in our day, in the 80s, the hardest would be like a beautiful woman. They weren't going to give up the funny to a beautiful woman. And the, the women in the crowd would be kind of jealous of her and the guys would be lustful for her. And so it was a very hard road to hoe as a beautiful woman doing stand-up comedy. It's changed today. But back then, then the easiest would be like a heavy black woman because she's got the minority status on both sides and, and the fat was always funnier. You know, it neutralized the sexual threat completely. And we always thought, think of as fat, jolly, fat. Jolly. Like, like when you're, comedy's in the vulnerability, right? So as I, a, a straight white guy, had to go on stage and show them where my vulnerability was. So I'd cut myself early. I can't do math or I can't do this or I'm not good at that to show some vulnerability. When a heavy person walks on the stage, their vulnerability is right out front. It's right out front. So, okay. So, so I always thought those yeah. things were, the, I thought those things were the scale. So I never, never looked at somebody who was right. really good looking has has having an advantage in stand-up comedy other than maybe doing sitcoms. All. You had those unbelievable talents that were good looking. Right. And he became a star. Jim Carrey is the biggest example. Right. Everybody recognized what an unbelievable talent he had to do impressions. And he was also a great looking guy. Right. Remember back in the 80s, there was actually a casting call where he said, we're looking for someone uh, uh, who's as funny as Bill Murray, right? And as good looking as Robert Redford. I go, wow, well, good luck with that. Good luck with that. Because so that combination doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. And then yeah. Jim Carrey comes along and goes, it does exist. Right. Brilliant. That's interesting. That's interesting. So in a way, what you're kind of speaking about is that there is sort of a uh, an evolution that we have very little control over, of a very big picture of of what society wants, accepts, as well as the business. That's right. That's right, because comedy just reflects society. Comedy is just a funhouse mirror reflection of society, a warped look at society. You don't change. The, the, you, 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 the comedy is changed by what happens. Like, so that, say, for instance, when I talk about, there's so many beautiful women doing stand-up now successfully. Funny, beautiful women. And they could talk about things in a sexual way that guys can't now. You know, when I first started, guys could talk about sexually much more freely than women could. There was a prohibition, there was an inhibition about women talking straight about sex. And guys could be able to talk about sex all night long. But you did have Mae West and Phyllis Diller doing it in a way, Phyllis even Diller, Tony Fields. Phyllis Diller wasn't talking about sex in a way. No, she wasn't. And Mae West was also arrested for it. And she was all innuendo back then. And I'm talking about movies, not stand-up comedy. So right, stand-up comedy, right. live stand-up comedy in a room, not... Phyllis, Phyllis Diller was first of all not talking. Was to that sex. something to do with the blue laws or any any anything to do with law? Well, societal prohibition mainly. I mean, um, uh, Mae West did a show called Sex. It was titled Sex, and she was arrested. I think nineteen thirteen and thrown in Rikers Island for this show as, wow. for obscenity in this show. And if you look at the show now today, it would be it's it's they put it on prime time. Right. But at the time, it was radical and, and, and called obscene in New York, in New York City. It might have got her hung in some other towns around America. But so that sort of made her name, though. It doesn't matter. The, the, the sex standards have changed. So now women can be on stage. They can talk about sex in a freer way than guys can. They can talk about banging multiple guys and getting drunk and blowjobs to guys yes. in, 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 a, in, a, in a way of, of the double standards are reversed. It's reversed. There's, if a guy goes on stage and starts talking about sex, having sex with a lot of women, right? Yeah. 
the women will hate the guy. The right. guys will be shut up. We don't want to hear you bragging. Gas can if he's bragging about his conquest would not work at all. Well, there's something even worse. Uh, but a woman go on stage yeah. and talk about the same sort of thing, and and women are like, "This is liberating," and the guys are like, well, "Yeah, talk about." That all you want? I'll talk. I'll listen to a woman talk about giving blowjobs all night long. But isn't comedy the uh, really the uh, soapbox of the little guy, whoever happens to be the little guy at the moment, who's just emerging? I mean, isn't that what it always it used to is? be? It's sort of. It, there was so also a shift women, in that in the eighties too. There, I'm sorry, what? There was a shift in that in the eighties too. It was always yeah. It's always best with the little guy shooting up. You know, there's always the outsider status gains you the most traction in, in stand-up comedy. And you, what the you're Jewish, saying, yeah. the Jewish were, were outsiders, right? The black comedians were outsiders, and they had a lot more traction per in comedy than their than their general numbers reflected in society. Like in 1976, they did a study. There, eighty percent. This was in Time magazine too. Eighty percent of the stand-up comics in 1976 were Jewish. I think the Jewish population. It was about 2% of America's general population. So 2% of the population represented 80% of the stand-up comics. And the same with the black population. There was a huge amount of black comics, more than the proportion of like whatever the population is, 11 12% of the general population. So Outsider they, status matters. So, okay. So yeah. why, why, is, why aren't there more Jews doing well in basketball? I don't know. Anything about yeah, that? Okay. I thought that's what you were saying. I thought that's. I thought some connection to that. I thought that's what you were saying. talking about. So yeah, I thought that's what you're saying. No, I say no. I know that. Oh, okay. I'm joking. Um, so going back about a page, we're talking about how at the moment we're talking about how uh, things can be a lot more open, and, and it's helped women. Women can talk about sex and their experiences. Um, uh, two things I was going to bring up. One is that when I was in San Francisco for a while, one, one of the big problems that um, all of the uh, uh, women comedians were having uh, was an issue with rape jokes that uh, guys would go up and they'd yeah. make some sort of rape joke. Yeah. Uh, but but the other the, the longest to to the other side of that long room wasn't it wasn't it kind of like more clever and more funny because it was more clever back in the day when there was censorship of some sort, whether societal or uh, corporate. And you, so you had to slip things under the door very carefully. I mean, Flip Wilson, man, yeah. come on. He was really yeah. filthy, right? It, you know? yeah. So, yeah. I mean, has, hasn't comedy, the art of comedy, suffered because of that? Well, a there, bit? You know, repression can make for some great art form, right? I mean, homosexuality was repressed in, in the world in America for years. So in the 1950s, you get Tennessee Williams. So sexual, homosexuality is no longer, uh, uh, you know, repressed. And, but you get like straight eye for the queer guy, whatever the hell it yeah, is. Yeah, now queer. we get hairspray. <laughs> hairspray, yeah. I mean, so, exactly, that's a better line. That's a better line. But, you know, the reference I was looking for, you got it, nailed it. So, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in the 50s, you know, homosexuality is repressed. You get Tennessee Williams. You know, 21st century, homosexuality is not repressed, and you get hairspray. Exactly. So, so I think uh, the incoming pres so, president so, is going to... Is going to clamp down the... Uh... Here's what I... Or we go back to the rape joke thing. <laughs> yeah, right. Go on. Because a lot of that is... Everybody wants to, wants to work the edge, especially now when there's so many comedians to get noticed. You want to be outrageous. The edge. The edge. Work the edge. Work the edge. Work the edge. You want to work the edge. What are the, what are the controversial subjects to take on? Pedophilia, rape, racism. If you're a white guy talking about race, 
You know, these are these. And why are, these is it controversial? Because an audience is thinking, "Oh, he'll never make." That. Well, how's a you know what, what's a when a white guy's talking about race is always like, a, "How are you going to do? How are you going to handle this? Are you going to?" Yeah, but you could talk about anything with a friend at a and bar get funny, or somebody and get funny. I'm being funny. And be funny. Be funny. Of course, that's yeah. we're only talking about being funny, right? Otherwise, you're a preacher <laughs> or a politician. <laughs> yeah. But our license to be funny. We have a license to be funny up there. That's it. So it's a challenge that you're presenting so, to the audience by saying, "I'm going to talk about pedophilia. Right, I'm going to make but it I'm funny." Going, I'm going to, I'm yeah. But they want to work the edge. Everyone wants to work. Everyone yeah. wants to be Bill Hicks. Everyone wants to be Louis C.K. Everyone wants to want to work the edge. But first of all, a lot of them don't have the skill set. I mean, just because you have a driver's license doesn't mean you can race in NASCAR. Okay, so a lot of them have the skill set, and a lot of them don't even bother to take the time to figure out why the audience is laughing. And it's always important, and never more important. Than when you're talking with controversial subjects, are you when you're making a, a racial joke? Is the audience laughing at the stereotype you just presented, or are you making fun of the stereotype? Which one? What are they laughing at there? You're doing a rape joke. Are you laughing at at the victim? Are you laughing at how? Are you demeaning the act of rape as something not not very bad, or are you making fun of the perpetrator? So a lot of times people don't stop the the comics. They just get to laugh. They don't stop. Why is the audience laughing there? Well, this is a problem that I've always had with being a comic in America versus in England is that uh, in America there seems to have to be a blame point, a person, a thing that, or a person or a job or you know personality uh, who is being uh, pointed at as the object of the joke. Okay, but in England, and and also you know not just in England, but what I found in England is that. We all the, the joke could include everyone in the joke is a fool. There is no particular blame to go around. It's quite Shakespearean. I I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, I think the, my way of thinking is that somebody gets a a pie in the face on every joke. Somebody's the punchline of the joke. Somebody gets a boot in the ass. The target. Yeah, there's always a target for the joke. But they can't be a victim. I mean, I mean, if you can't go after victims. I, I'm saying what what what, target, what I never liked. I never liked was shooting down. You talk right. about shooting up. I like right. shooting up. Go after the top shelf. Right. Go after the people at the top. Right. That's where it always worked best. That's where stand-up comedy worked best. There became a thing, and you saw this in the '80s with a proliferation of making fun of the homeless, or yeah. or or you know that became a vogue for a while, or shooting down at people. You know, yeah. ah, you're an idiot. You got a job. You got you work yeah. at this kind of job or whatever. Yeah. You're an idiot. Yeah. And that was shooting down. Right? There was a smugness that came into it, into being, in a vogue, in a being. And again, I'm like, I'm like, who are you making fun of? Who's taking the pie? I'll, I'll take the pie in the face right and left. I was never comfortable watching comics who never took a pie in the face, never did any self-deprecating humor, never included themselves, always sarcasm and making fun of everybody else, but never included themselves as vulnerable. It's vulnerable. Where's your humanity? And so I, I'm uncomfortable with people who, who do a rape joke and you go, you just really demean the victim there. You really just minimize the, the rape. Would you talk, would you? Oh, I would say something to them, yeah. And if I was in a room and they did a couple of them, they'd hear from me as a heckler. Wow. I have no problem about that. Listen, the First Amendment right is not exclusive to the comedian. That's what I always love about comedians going, hey man, yeah, they're yelling, I do a thing and they, they yell back, you know, it's because they're not politically correct. I go, what do you think you're doing with the First Amendment right here? If you're offensive, you might hear about it. You want to work the edge? Be prepared to work the edge. You know, everybody goes, oh, Bill Hicks, Bill Hicks. Bill Hicks walked a lot of people. You know, I wrote it in a book. He had to whittle down the audience to find his following. Right. I mean, he 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 was brave that way. I was, there, I, was there that, I was there that first night when the entire comedy store walked out on Kinnison. And as they left through that little black curtain to the outside real world, 
they all like shouted something at him and he was screaming back you know i I, I got a list of your sacred dead. You're gonna wipe my ass was, with it. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I saw yeah. a whole audience walk out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, you have to be willing to do that if you want to work the edge. But, but also, isn't it like young comics in the '70s, uh, young musicians in the '70s? I was a musician in the, in the '70s. I was a drummer in, in bands, and uh, we had our images. You know, and there was this famous 1972 photo of Keith Richards at an airport, uh, and he had a Coca-Cola sticker yeah. uh, us out his arm, and everyone knew that was Coke. And so uh, when I was like hanging out at Rodney Binghamheimer's English Disco on Sunset Boulevard when I was 16, I had rock and roll platform shoes and a red leather jacket and I was a drummer. There was this notion that, you know, if you are as cool as your idol, then you have a chance of making it. And to be cool was to do coke. And uh, the only analogy back to the comics of today is that these comics are looking at, oh, Bill Hicks made it by being on the edge. <laughs> I think I'll do that too. I don't, you know, it's funny when you say it was be cool, doing coke was to be cool. Yeah. I never even looked at it that way. To me, coke was to avoid being a blackout drunk. <laughs> right. I was very, it was, it was very frightening <laughs> to wake up your car driving it, uh -huh. you know, with people that you didn't know. It was frightening to wake up in places where you didn't know where you were. So when I did cocaine, it, prevented the blackout drunk. I was a wide awake drunk. Yeah, that was. A, so I never looked at yeah. it as cool or anything. I was looked at, it, it replaced speed, which I had problem with pills and the, and, and the intake on pills. That's always for me, but that's just a side No, no it's not a side, it's actually the subject. I mean, because much of your book, Kicking Through the Ashes, available through Amazon, um, is uh, kind of Hunter S. Thompson a little bit, kind of like, you know, Fear and Loathing on the Road. Yeah. That story where uh, everyone was Go, uh, you drove up and there was this drug dealer that stiffed you guys and it was an embarrassing sort of little farce. Um, it's in the book. <laughs> it's in your book. It's looking at me like, it's all you read, Stephen. <laughs> no, no, you read that off Facebook. That was the story. It's not in the book. Oh, it's not in That's the book. That's the pot dealer who beat us. That's right. That's right. That's not in the book. That's what I was looking I, I at. I noticed here. that when I went to your reading at yeah. the uh, uh, a few a few months ago, which was yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Uh, which, by the way, I, I might have done that story there to reading. That's why you're thinking. Well, of to it. a lot of you mentioned that people are confusing stories on Facebook with. Uh, yeah, I the just book. you know I started but the book started by me putting stories on Facebook and then it started to take shape. I think I got a, I got I looked at all my notes. And I went. I got enough stories here. I got enough things to say about every part of stand-up comedy. Every story I had in the book. Um, was because it had something to do with one aspect. So I had multiple stories on heckling. So I put the best one I had in. Had multiple stories on joke thievery. But I put the best story I had about joke thievery. You know, so I tried to cover every aspect, but not be redundant. Uh, have you uh, looked at uh, the other books out there? Particularly, I'm dying up here. Oh, go ahead. Look on your yeah. shelf. Yeah. Look on your shelf. Yeah. I got every one of them. Yeah. I got every book you can think of, and every one that comes out, I grab. There's a new book out now about Mark Twain's uh, last, last stand-up tour. One of the greatest. Was he an improv guy? <laughs> yeah, he was more of a monologist than a character act. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I hate to meddle, but if anyone knows me, that's all that I do. And um, I, I, the, that reading that I saw at what was that name of that venue? Uh, on the, 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 the art gallery. The there. art gallery. It was, it was on uh, Laurel Canyon. It was on Laurel Canyon. Yeah, That's yeah. correct. Bev Mickens was. It's, it's story time. It's story time. I gotta tell you, folks. Um, sorry to have ignored you this whole time, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> uh, but uh, 
Yeah, um, I got to tell you, um, uh, you know, I've been, I've been, I've seen a lot of shows. Uh, one of my uh, uh, yeah. Steppenwolf all of a sudden. Um, I, 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 I've seen a lot of shows and I've been on a lot of shows and I've reviewed a lot of shows. And without equivocation, uh, your show was the best show I've seen in Los Angeles in years. And and I know you don't... And the point that I'm making is I, I don't know if you see it as a show. I mean, you should do this as a show, you, these book signings. But don't call them book signings or call them book signings. Whatever you do. Yeah. But it's just great because... Uh, I don't know who the rest of the audience was. I saw uh, comics I knew and yeah. various people who know comics. Yeah. But the sense that I got was that you could have been a welder talking about welding stories. You could have been a fisherman. You could have been anything, a doctor, a soldier. It doesn't matter. The way you observed, the way you experienced, the way you edited, and the way you presented what you've written um, was just about... The worst thing I think I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, but I've seen a lot of things. No, I mean it's it's definitely well, uh, I love doing a show. It. Yeah, I love doing it. Yeah, I'm going, so I'm going to do it Sunday it? night at Canters. This Sunday I'm doing it can, at Canters. Where behind this? The Kibitz Room in Canters. Oh, I would say the show gonna, right gonna, behind the bologna slicing machine. They're gonna they're gonna film it the Sunday night. Me doing stories like that. Who's they? I mean, like I regular, this, regularly? Uh, uh, yeah, this this production, uh, this this producer. So this is gonna be a regular thing. I'm gonna do a regular thing this Sunday. It's not every Sunday. I'm gonna do it this Sunday. What time? Uh, I think it's uh, uh, eight o'clock at the Kibitz Room. I think so. At Canters. Yes. And on by, Fairfax. On Fairfax. Yeah. I don't think this podcast is going to be out in time. No, I know that. I doubt it. So, All right. I'll just so then let me ask you this. Yeah. Switching subjects completely. Yeah. <clears throat> How did your show at Cantor's go? <laughs> you know, Stephen, we sold a lot of books. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, God was damn. There. God, and speaking of Steppenwolf, yeah. God damn the pusher man. Uh, yeah, well. <laughs> I've seen a lot. I thought you were starting to do that lyric. I've seen a lot of shows. Oh, that's you know, I, I've seen that's a lot. That's what I was referencing. Yeah, yeah, that's I, what I was referencing. I know what you are referencing. You knew it. Uh, uh, I got to tell you, that show at that show at the Kibitz Room, I I didn't think it was as good as the one at the books bookstore. It can never be. It wasn't as good. It, I mean, it was great. It was different, a different level. No, it was a whole different level. Well, that's this is really great news because yeah. what I'm going to do it around, like you said, I, yeah. I like doing that, and I want to do those those kind of shows. I want to do shows of just all stories of, of stand up stories. And then I read that one part of the book from the the Prince and the POW, my theory on how somebody becomes a stand up. Oh, and yes. I read that one part, but the rest of it's just performance. I, I love the one part of the only thing I read was that chapter. I love that 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 observation that uh, that it just sort of basically. If you were, if one was turning your book into a movie, yeah. If I was doing it, my, uh -huh. my style of doing it would be, I would use that quote voiceover in the beginning of the film. That's a great idea. You know, that's let, a great idea. Would you would you share with our uh, yes? Uh, I mean, couple I, of, how many we got out? We got about three dozen people listening. Uh, by the way, Mary, I got your but email. Not intently. Yeah, not intently. Mary, I got your email. And uh, <laughs> you actually conversed with people. I, I'm going to say that's JPEG back <laughs> but, to you. And uh, I asked Barry Katz. <laughs> I asked. <laughs> I, He's individually addressing yeah. his listeners. Yeah. And, uh, uh, yeah, Eric, um, uh, yeah, give me a call. I'll call you when we're done here. Anyway, um, <laughs> what was I pretending to say? You wanted to know about the Prince and POW. Theory. Yes, please. So please yeah. introduce this yeah. and then do it. And th ladies and gentlemen, this 
This is gold coming from uh, Rich Scheidner. I, I, it just was my observation that stand-up comic is such an extreme career choice. And I knew lots of people who were as funny as me who never even tried to do stand-up. They just became lawyers with great sense of humor. They became very funny construction workers. They became very funny salespeople. Whatever it was, they were just really funny, but they never had to drive to go do stand-up comedy. So I said, what is it that drives us? I knew it was environmental in some way. So I theorized that this, this, the stand-up comic was either raised like a prince or POW. So they were growing up, the prince got far more attention they could possibly ever get. You know, they were praised for every little thing they did. You know, everything was just gold, gold, gold. And so when they, they get out into the real world, where are they going to find that kind of praise and attention? You're not going to find a regular job. When you go on stage, people are applauding and screaming your name, and you're going to get that kind of approval that you're seeking. It feels natural to you. And then the POW on the opposite was was beaten emotionally or physically like a dog, like a, a POW, man. Just They were raised without any of that approval and denied any sort of self-regard. And so when they get out in the real world, where are they going to get what they never got? But on the stage, from rooms full of strangers, laughing at everything they think of. And you could you 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 could see the performance. I mean, when the when the 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 prince is on stage, it's a gleeful, narcissistic performance. Look, mom, no hands, and just riding a little bike around the stage. Just everybody is, and and when the POW is on stage, it's like it's almost an act of desperation. They're holding a gun to their head, yelling, "Can you see me now? Can you see me now?" And you can, pretty much for me, I can tell just by the way. They get applause, if nothing else. Just by the way they handle applause is me as an indication whether they're a prince or POW. Because the prince, there can't get it be can't be enough applause. They'll stand on stage and bow and you know, almost work that standing ovation. Just keep bowing to them. Thank you, thank you. They'll stay and linger. They it feels good, it's natural. They're very comfortable with that kind of approval. But the POW is not comfortable with that kind of approval. So when the POW finishes the set, man, they'd either drop the mic or they jam that mic back into the stand and they take off the stage before the audience changes their mind. Who are some examples? Well, um, there's a lot of examples. I think Ellen uh, would be a, a prince. Ellen DeGeneres would be a prince. I think Seinfeld would be a prince. And this is no cut. This is no, you know, everybody has their own problems. It's not like you don't have to work through any kind of problems. I'm just saying the way they they're, they got to, to, the, to stand up. And I think uh, Kennison, I know myself, I know the other people who are POW types more. Um, if you look at things, I mean... Uh, Which was Pryor? He's seen both. It seemed the, the greatest have that kind of angle to them. But Pryor was, I think there was no the question he was a POW, man. Look at the way he was raised, man. I read his biographies, you know. I mean, his dad was all over him. His, 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 the, there, was, there, was some, there was some grandmotherly love there and all. But there was really, you know, it was, was tough for him to find any traction for himself, you know. And like Steve Martin would be an example of, of the, I think his mom gave him great approval when I read his book, but his dad, not at all. And Carlin was kind of like that. Like some of the biggest stars had that, almost like working that edge of it, of the P Prince POW. Almost got a little bit of both of it in there. And and Carlin's mom, man, she had him performing in the office, man. She was her little shining prince, you know, little little fun boy. But his dad was gone, man. His dad was uh, booted out by the mom and not 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 in in around at all. I guess a big big alcohol. So folding back to what we were talking about a bit before about how yeah. comedy reflects, you, you said the mirror, 
uh, of society. Um, uh, is that it, it? Does does society go in, in trends whether they want a prince or a POW? I don't think so. I think there's always they just want the laughs. So I'm just saying how the comic approaches goes to the. So you think it's a personal stage. thing that doesn't necessarily. I don't think reflect. it necessarily. I don't, I don't think it reflects how funny they are. I mean, there's princes are as funny as POWs. How much they're laughing, but I think if you're going to bet on a star, especially if it comes to just overall likability to be a sitcom star or that sort of thing. Yeah. You know, and never, no, always bet on royalty, man. Bet right. on royalty. All right, well, look, um, I, I, we're going to wrap up soon. I want to ask yeah. you a couple more questions sure. here. Um, there's been uh, a, uh, a big comedy movement in the last five years that's crossed over and back from film. Uh, and it's definitely... Uh, infected or uh, taken landscape in 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 the comedy stand-up comedy world, and that is awkward comedy. These what I'm referring to are uh, twenty and thirty somethings talking, uh, you know, basically displaying sort of uh, making the audience feel awkward, talk a little bit, talking about awkward situations, being awkward, and I find it really interesting. I haven't figured it out yet. It's kind of British in a way because you know Brits the entire system, oh sorry you know this is very embarrassing that's the worst thing that can happen to a Brit is being embarrassed um, do, you, do you know what I'm talking referring yeah, to? I call it uh, confessional comedy confessional comedy? So, when Lenny, there, yeah. there are two big revolutions in my book Kicking Through the Ashes I talk about the revolution of the, of the 1980s there were two big times in stand up comedy history I think and both of them were sort of recent and then there was a late 50s early 60s revolution that Lenny Bruce and Mort Saul led where comedy became an art form, where what the comic said mattered and became attached to the comic. So people wanted to believe that the comic, this was the comic's life and their feelings and their belief and their opinion, and it mattered what they said. So comedy became more conversational. It, came, it started becoming more conversational then. And this is, to me, just the evolution of that because people are trying to be more and more conversational. They're trying, when, I, when I was, we performed in my generation. This is how right. things will change. We went after the laughs. You, you got go get those laughs. Go after them. You got to make them laugh. We performed. There was no question what I was doing up there. But like today, the Vogue, you know, if you want to say that word, the style is to act like you're not really trying. You don't want to look like you're really trying to get laughs. You're just up there kind of talking. You could be talking in front of the Starbucks. You could be talking in, in the dry cleaner. You could be talking on stage. Just had to be talking, and you're sort of awkwardly can talking to someone in a conversation. So it's become more of the style. That's all. It's just a style. Again, you know, it's like anything else. You know, I have that story in my book about, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, Maury Amsterdam. You know, we went and told him, well, we don't do jokes like you guys do yes. jokes. He goes, oh, yeah, well, what, what are you doing? Tell me tell me the jokes you boys yes. are doing. What, what are you doing for jokes? What do you, tell me what you do to get laughs. And we tell him one of our bits. And he goes, yeah, that was done by Ricky Craig Jr. in 1930. <laughs> and he, he would just go, these are all been done before. And call him whatever you want to call him. You know, when the alt-comedy thing happened, people say, they, I remember them comics, and I remember right. reading the thing in LA Weekly, this was 20-some years ago, going, well, we're not doing jokes anymore. I go, yeah, I'll go watch your show, and I'll be able to pick out the setup and punchline every time. And the biggest hint is, when you stop talking and they laugh, that was a punchline. I don't care how you want to cut it. I don't care how you built to the punchline, what setup you used to disguise it. But, you know, the audience may not see it as obvious as before. It's not as obvious as a straight setup. Take my wife, please. But believe me, there was a setup and punchline. There was a joke, whatever you want to call it, 
that's how the humor yeah i wasn't we we uh, myself included i i wasn't ashamed why would i be of working it and bringing it back well every comedy every generation wants to separate themselves from the generations before them you know the worst thing you're accused of is doing what the people before you did artistically yeah but what if all the chefs in the world said you know ah, those chefs those old chefs made good tasting nutritious food we're not going to do that well i think some i'm not saying cooking is an art form or not an art form i'm just saying some art laughter. forms are more more uh territorial than others we're supposed to produce laughter that is our job at That's the right, comedy right, factory right right but we're, they don't want to go but you you like, like if i go on stage if there was a curtain in front of me and the audience could not see me at all perform but just heard me they would know I'm of a different generation without seeing me because my style is of my generation. And? I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying funny. I'm just saying they would know. And in certain times, it's like when we first started, when those guys would come and do, um, uh, older comics would come into the club to perform, and they do that style, which was the style they were doing when they were young in the 50s, right? These guys, whoever they were, Catskill Comics or whatever. You could hear it. We'd go, yeah, that's old style. You know, it's, it's like, if like, Carson doing like, you know, I'm so drunk. How drunk are you? You know, it's it's an old style. Sure. It's an old style of joke. All I'm saying is with the confessional comics or the awkward comic or whatever you want yeah. to phrase it that you were talking about, it's just a different style, that's all. The end result is the same. You're getting laughs or you're not getting laughs. How you're doing it will change because people want something new. They want something their own. And it's also because of social media, people are so confessional now. Everybody's confessional. It's people confess everywhere on Twitter, on Facebook. They put things what? out. What people actually put personal <laughs> Look at you, things. You, on. you, yours is like are daily you therapy. Serious? Yeah. So, so people, so people are are more confessional, and so why wouldn't stand-up comedy reflect that? Where the comics become more confessional. I mean, I appreciate that, and I think you're absolutely right, and it does reflect what's going on with social media and the world. Um, uh, for me, though, at the end of the day, whatever art form I'm looking at. Uh, you know, I want to be. I want to be moved in a way. I want to be. Uh, ch- I want to be different than when I walk into the comedy club and come out. I want to be changed, different, like seeing a good movie. I don't. I don't think stand-up comedy is about that. I think it's about laughter. I want to laugh. So make me laugh. And I'm if I'm bored. If I see the if I see too many of the scenes. You don't in your think act, it's also about teaching the no, audience? No, no. About no, life. You can't. You can't change them. If you go in front of a of a like okay, you go into a group group of of all Republicans. Yeah. And you do material making fun of Trump and all, yeah. you're not going to get laughs. Yeah. I don't care how smart and brilliant and insightful your jokes are, they're not sharing the values you have behind them and they're not going to find them funny. And the conversely, if some ultra-conservative comic went up in front of, 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 of a, a, a Democratic, uh, a, a liberal group, and they did the exact opposite, and they're not going to laugh at it. By the way, they're not going to change. Did you, did you see that clip of, I think it's Larry Wilmore at the... Uh, uh, the uh, international press, uh, the Washington D.C. press thing. Yeah, you know. Yeah, man, he struggled. Yeah, it's it, it's it's just. <laughs> Sorry, Larry. I mean, Larry's a very very funny guy. That's yeah. a hard room to do. I can't yeah. imagine doing it. Like I'm not a political comedian anyway. What I'm saying is, the people who do mostly, that's where you find the difference, the obvious, most obvious difference. But anyway, you know, when people say, "Oh, political correctness," you know, every group has political correctness. Every group. The people who yell most about political correctness tend to be on the right, correct? Am I, am I, my assumption pretty much? They'll go, why can't we be, say what we want to say because these people are so political Oh, that's correct, anti-political right? correctness. Right, okay, yeah. okay. No, that's where the phrase came from, actually, back in the 60s. So when, when, if you, if you have a group, if you have an NRA convention, yeah. okay, 
There are a lot of those people in there be going, ah, I hate the political correctness today. Freedom of speech, right? Say whatever I want to say. Right. Right. Most of those people would feel that way. You go on stage in front of that NRA group and you start making jokes about the Second Amendment, see how politically correct they get. I'll hear fast. a lot of clicks in the audience. You'll at the get same a time. lot of political correctness. <laughs> Click. Right. Uh, so the book is called Kicking Through the Ashes, Rich Scheidner. My life is a stand-up in the 1980s comedy boom. Introduction by Bill Maher. Yeah. And it's found uh, at Amazon. Look who's on the back. And on the back. Which one? Chris Rock? Chris Rock. Oh. Bill Burr. Jeff Foxworthy. These are, Margaret uh, Cho. These are quotes from... These are blurbs on the back. Uh, uh, you know, Billy Gardell. These are people who Bill are... Bill Burr. Yeah, these are people who uh, enjoyed the book. Mark Maron. Mark Maron. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm I enjoyed the book as well, and um, I enjoyed this interview very much. Thank you. Steve. Uh, anything you want to plug other than the uh, Cantor show you just did? No, that's it. <laughs> Thank you, man. All right. Well, uh, we've been interviewing Rich Scheidner. Uh, thank you very much, Rich, and we'll be right back with and we'll be right back. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, man. Thank you. Well. That's our show today. I want to thank my guests, Rob Kerr and Rich Scheidner. Uh, this is Stephen Allen Green. Find out more about me and the podcast at StephenAllenGreen.com. That's S-T-E-V-E-N-A-L-A-N-G-R-W-N.com. And uh, there's also a donation link uh, right under this podcast or near it, wherever you're looking and listening to it right now. If you've enjoyed yourself uh, by listening, then Please make a donation. Anything you can do is much appreciated. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, have a great happy new year. And we'll see you next time on And We'll Be Right Back. Welcome to my podcast in the morning. Welcome to my podcast in the day. Welcome to my podcast in the evening welcome to my podcast today